0: Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the Backstory, looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Chapter 6 Early Church History Sounds like I'm going to tell a story, but no, I'm going to start by talking about the story, the one presented to us in the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the four Gospels. Acts of the Apostles. A brief window that we're given into what went on after Jesus left the scene, before we're plunged into the darkness of what is early church history. We're going to look at the nature of this story. Acts of the Apostles. It's a very unique book. There are some good questions to ask before you read something if the category or nature of the work is something you haven't stopped to think about or if you want to check your assumptions. When we turn those pages from the Gospels to Acts and start in on this story, what is it that we're reading? How should we read it? People with different answers to these questions will come away with dramatically different impressions, dramatically different information after reading it. With the Bible, of course, there are very different answers to these questions and our various answers mostly come from assumptions we make about the character and intention of the author. So the first half of this episode is going to be about acts, but I haven't forgotten where we left off in the last episode. So after this assessment of acts, We'll head back to tracing the Christ concept, back in time from John through Matthew and and Luke, and back to Mark, to see how much it diminishes. I know it's been a while since the last episode, even longer this time, and those who have subscribed must be thinking I've lost interest in doing this. But this is far from the case. It's just it takes me a while to get around to it. This time I've been working on a veggie garden and a few other things. But I've been thinking about it a lot, and my fascination for this phenomenon called Christianity is growing. And it is a phenomenon, an extraordinary ideology for so much of the world's population to be subscribed to. And what I find most extraordinary is that so much of this ideology is not built on the teachings of the man who is supposed to be the founder of this religion. It really is quite odd. And it gets more so the more you look to see what this anomaly is supported by. Anomaly is, a, is one of those words I have to look up to see what it means, and the dictionary has, quote, a deviation from the common rule type arrangement or form, unquote. I think it's fair to say that a religion that claims to be all about one man, while in actual fact it's built on the teachings of another, is a deviation from the common rule type arrangement or form. But this deviation is supported by church history. Well, the first bit of church history, which is one solitary document. But church history? It sounds like something that is quite solid, doesn't it? Like, it's history, isn't it? Here's where another statement can be made without reservation. A lot of church history is not history. But to clarify here, we need to define these words. They can be used in different ways. The word history sounds like it refers to what actually happened. But the thing is, what actually happened 2000 years ago is lost to us for the most part. No one was there with a video camera. We only have a fairly small amount of documents to work with to get some understanding of what happened in the first century. The most historically valuable of these documents for this inquiry being in the New Testament. So there's the word history where it refers to events that have happened in the past, and if there's an account given of events, the implication is that it's well substantiated and reasonably accurate, and there's history as the study of past events, or historical inquiry. What I'm saying is that a lot of what is put forward as church history, particularly about where it all started, is neither of these. Here's something from the New South Wales Department of Education. What is historical inquiry? It is, quote, the process of developing knowledge and understanding by posing questions about the past and applying skills associated with locating, analysing, evaluating, and using sources as evidence to develop an informed argument or interpretation. Since putting up the last episode, I've been listening to podcasts that deal with church history to get an idea of what's out there and to see what more I could learn. There really is not much out there on this subject. And the trouble is that what there is to be found is almost all by Christians. The reason this is a problem is that being a Christian means that you believe the documents in the New Testament are somewhere near perfect expositions of what we need to know courtesy of God. So Christians invariably go through the book of Acts as if it is history in the sense that it is a totally reasonable outline of how things developed, giving the right impression of what really happened, as if it is history in that sense of the word. Which it could be. Acts gives us one perspective on what was going on, and this could be an accurate and reasonable perspective. But history is usually expounded by looking at many sources, different perspectives, Drawing conclusions that recognise that each perspective is a piece of the puzzle at best and does not necessarily give us all we need, and also recognising that one perspective can be misleading, depending on things like agenda. The trouble is, for the first phase of church history, the most important bit, we only really have this one story. And Acts of the Apostles has agenda coming out of its ears. Historical Inquiry is a discipline that recognises that history is open to interpretation. Early Church history is very rarely treated in this way. The term Church history mostly refers to the retelling of a story that was promulgated by the Church. And that story starts with Acts, which was written before the Catholic Church came to power, but it then served that Church to publish this document, preserving it at the expense of all others. You don't have to be biased to recognise this. You have to be biased to ignore it. There would have been other stories that provided other perspectives on what was going on. Because there seems to have been a lot of people who were interested in these events all around the Mediterranean, and we know there were people who saw things very differently. Jewish people who saw things very differently. Later in this podcast we'll be looking at a very obscure story that gives something of their perspective on these events. This book of Acts plays a role, a key role in the story of church history. It does something and it does it very well. The fact that most people, Christian or not, think that Christianity is the religion of Jesus is thanks to a very significant degree to this little story. Why do Christians say that Christianity is all about Jesus and then ignore his essential teaching? The Parable of the Sheep and the Goats in Matthew chapter 25. His answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He points to the Ten Commandments. In Luke ten twenty-five. he, s- he answers and says, Love God and your neighbour and it's all about what you do, not what you think. His illustration is the Parable of the Good Samaritan, after which he says, Go and do likewise. He doesn't say it's by grace through faith and then go on to explain the mind game of Christianity. There's been a deviation, a misdirection in Christianity, and it's found at the start of this story that we call church history. Acts of the Apostles plays a role like a big sign on the road at an intersection that says, this way. And this role can be demonstrated by reading out a list of the New Testament books. But for each of the books, rather than the usual name, I'll say who it is that is teaching us So here's that list in the order presented to us in the New Testament. Jesus, 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 Acts. Paul, 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 And then after Paul, we have an unknown author, and then James, Peter, Peter, John, 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 Jude, John. Of course, as usual, it's not that black and white. There are a few pseudo-writers in there, including a very gentile Christian Peter, but you get the picture. Just in case you missed it, there's a lot of Pauls in there. The core of Christianity is Paul's teaching, and Acts is the document that brings Paul into the story, and presents us with the biggest Christian assumption. It's enormous, but it hides in there quite effectively, somehow. If you wonder about the centrality of Paul's teaching to Christianity, try going into a church and pointing out some areas where the teaching of Jesus seems to be contrary to Christian doctrine or the Christian salvation message. You will invariably be directed to verses in the letters of Paul. In fact, you can offend Christians quite effectively by highlighting Jesus at the expense of Paul. It can be a bit of fun, but it also can be quite disturbing. When I began this whole journey of questioning Christianity, I actually started with asking why so little attention is paid to the words of Jesus, where he describes the lifestyle, values or actions of those who would call themselves his followers. And this ignited some of the most offended, defensive and bitter responses I've received. Acts is what the Christian story hinges on because it brings in Paul. And the Christian story is absolutely dependent on the primacy of Paul because Christianity is based on his teaching. Jesus, 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 Paul, 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 etc. would have raised the suspicion of all those razor-sharp Christians who are in the habit of looking for good reasons why they believe things. Throw in a book like Acts, and it all makes perfect sense. All of a sudden, there's no reason to ask any questions. But does it make sense? If we were on our toes, we'd be looking for a pretty good connection that goes from Jesus through his disciples to Paul. We'd be reading Acts, looking for evidence of that connection, rather than being carried along by the narrative, making the assumption without realising it. Before you know it, the disciples of Jesus are gone. It's all about Paul, and no one is looking back. No heads over the shoulders, no questions about the direction we're going in. We're all just looking forward to what Paul has to say to us. Okay, we're not going to move on from here for a bit. I'm going to dwell on this for a while longer, because this podcast is about spending time on the bits that are usually glossed over and left behind. Listening to a Christian, whether they're an historian or not, telling you about this most important period of church history can be annoying. Well, I find it a bit annoying when they just go through Acts and tell you what it says, like a bedtime story because they're not treating it as an historical document if they don't question it, considering the intent of the writer. There are problems with Christianity in regards to its connection with the movement of Jesus. And when you raise these problems with a learned Christian, it can be like talking to a salesman in a car yard, who is trying to sell you a car that has some serious issues. Some Christian historians are quite forthright, but they will either inadvertently or intentionally steer clear of certain assumptions that lay buried within their belief system, essential assumptions, without which the Christian dots are not connected, the real problems. So let's spend a bit of time here and have a look at this analogy of the car yard. The car is Christianity, and the transmission, a rather important component, is acts of the apostles. Salesmen or women who are working for a company that sells cars are generally a bit reticent to dwell on the faults of the car they're selling. Cars generally have the odd fault, and an honest car salesman might point out these faults, particularly if there are other cars on the lot. But what if there is only one car that they need to sell, and what if their company has a very strong policy of talking around its faults, avoiding them? Or pretending they're not there and what if the salesmen and women all believe in this policy because they believe that God is the CEO of the company that made the car so their belief in the car far outweighs their recognition of any faults like a blind spot they sincerely believe that they are doing the best they can for the customer if they do whatever they can to just promote the car So of course they believe the car has the best transmission available. They don't need to test it. They might admit that the hinges on the glove box are a bit questionable, but they would never bring something so integral as the transmission into question. Now let's step back from the analogy. In a car, the transmission transfers the drive from the motor to the drive shaft. In Christianity, I'm likening this to how things go from Jesus to Paul in the Christian story, the transmission involved there. The Book of Acts is the component in the New Testament that illustrates this, provides the material to affirm this. And like the transmission in a car, the material has to be strong and up to the task. It needs to be convincing. And its fulfilment of this task is absolutely essential for the Christian story. Now back to the analogy. What if the transmission in this car doesn't actually work? And the salesmen and women have never really, seriously, thought to question it. Virtually all of them. How do we know it's all of them? Well, a condition of being part of this company is belief in the manual for the car. If you don't believe in the manual, you are by definition not a part of the company and therefore you are not one of the salespeople. If one of these salespeople questions the manual and decides that it could be wrong, that components in the car could in fact be faulty, one who really looks into the quality of this car and might inspect the transmission, finding that it's dodgy and therefore the manual is misleading and may not have been authored by a deity, a measure that could well be noted as conscientious, this means that this person is no longer part of the company and will be derided and viewed with suspicion, discredited. And it's true. Disgruntled ex-salesmen. You've got to watch them. Like, what is this rubbish about a dodgy transmission? How could such a popular car have a bad transmission? This car has been tested with endless reports and diagnosis. Like I mean every week for hundreds and hundreds of years, by the company experts. All the same, the transmission doesn't work. It's a lemon. In this analogy, historians are the mechanics, and unbelievably, while most mechanics are quick to notice that the gearbox is held together with assumptions and cable ties, quite a few mechanics buy the car and endorse it, saying there's nothing wrong with it. And customers who are inclined to believe this will buy the car, while those with a healthy dose of suspicion might have a look to see if it works. You don't have to be a mechanic to notice a gearbox that doesn't work. So, is it so bad? Is the book of Acts such a terrible component in the Bible? Am I pulling this out of nowhere just to be controversial? I've made quite a case for the flimsiness of this book, one aspect of it, and that is, as a transitional document from Jesus to Paul, from Jew to Gentile, from community of disciples to Christian churches, does Acts not work as this transitional document. Does it not do the job? Well, in the next episode we'll start reading between the lines of Acts, along with a few of Paul's letters to answer this question, but for now, back to the tracing of the Christ concept in the Synoptic Gospels, which is where we left off in the last episode. I was going to finish with that before I got on to Acts, but I think this jump ahead to the entry of Paul into the equation fits well enough. I'm yet to back up what I've said about Acts, but I've looked at the huge leap to Paul in Christianity, and that he was given primacy by those who chose the books for the New Testament. They elevated his letters to divine status by putting them in there. For Christians, that means that God must have been behind this. But it could have just been people who preferred Paul. And now I'm just going to say something without illustrating it because it's just too obvious. This is a point that I'll go on to back up further. It's an issue that this podcast as a whole is dealing with. Those who know me well enough or who are conversant with this subject could see this coming. The Christ concept is Paul's baby. Anyone who isn't familiar with Paul's letters can have a look and see. It's all through his letters. It's his gospel and he claims to have received it by revelation, independent of the disciples of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, he says this quite clearly. We've seen that this concept was not taught by Jesus to his disciples when he was teaching them as their rabbi. We've also seen that this concept does make appearances in the questionable Gospel of John, and at least one of those appearances is highly questionable. And now we're going to have a look at some scraps in the Synoptic Gospels to consider whether or not these allusions to the Christ concept fit and make sense as something taught by Jesus. We're going to look at the possibility that they might have been inserted, tweaked or added to the words of Jesus by the same people who were so motivated to bring in Paul and his doctrine. We're going to see how Paul's concept fares as we take it back to Mark. But before we do that, we'll go to a break, and a quick word from our sponsor. Although it has the impeccable finish, safety features and class of the ultimate luxury car. Christianity offers you so much more. But you won't see the best feature in the sumptuous interior. It's not the lavish appointments, or the heavenly engineering. Not even the state of the art sound system. It's the cruise control. It gets you to heaven. The only car that gets you there. And you don't have to do anything. Just get in. Get it into gear. And enjoy the ride. Christianity, it's all about what you think. along to the program, and a bit of a footnote. After writing this episode, I remembered how I said in a previous episode that I was going to look for evidence in a positive way for Christianity. My thoughts were at the time that I would do it as if I was doing my best to find evidence for the authenticity of the Christ concept, as something taught by Jesus. But then I forgot that I'd said that, and I went ahead and wrote this episode as someone who is trying to show that it's not authentic. So should I change it? And I've decided no, it would be a bit of a pretense, designed to prove my point anyway, so I withdraw that statement. But not the one where I said that I intend to make the most of any evidence for the Christian position, if and when I come across anything impressive. I had another game of wall tennis with Tim Ravenhall this morning, at the time of writing, that is. The reverend of the Presbyterian Church that I interviewed in Chapter 2. We've been meeting for a hit and a coffee on Fridays when time allows and he said something about being entrenched in your position and I must admit I am entrenched in my position on this subject and it really is helpful to talk to him and get a perspective that I no longer appreciate so well. I ask him questions and he reminds me of the other side of the argument and we contend with each other over these issues as well as on the court. He beat me again this week and that's three times in a row, which I find really disappointing. So there are two things I know that I need at this juncture. The first is a wall tennis coach. I don't know why I want to beat him so much, but I do. And the second is an argument for the other side, because I can't provide that. I don't want this podcast to be a rant against Christianity, and I know it probably sounds that way to a lot of people. I'm not trying to just prove a point. The idea is actually to progress towards what is most likely to be true. So what I'm saying needs to be countered by someone who disagrees with me. This would give listeners a, a more balanced view of things and will correct me where I'm out of line. I know at least one mistake I've made in the introduction to this podcast, and I'll say a bit about that at the end of this episode. I made the mistake because of an assumption, and I made the assumption because of my bias. So I'm still hoping that someone will take the time to send in a voice message to counter what I'm saying with a concise argument for the other side of any point that I've made. This can be done on the Anchor app. Go to anchor.fm forward slash shakingchristianity and click on the message button. There are now almost a thousand subscribers to this podcast. If you're knowledgeable and you want to speak up for Christianity, you can get a message out to them and I will include your message in the next episode if it's informative. Of course I'll most likely comment on it, but I promise I will play fairly and not take advantage of my position. Okay, the tracing of the Christ concept. From the book of John, back in time through Matthew and Luke, to Mark. My aim is to go through this in the most straightforward way that I can, but first, I'm going to do a bit of anti-Semitism tracing, to demonstrate the similarities between the two threads, looking at the possibility that they're coming from the same people. So first up, the dating of documents. Historians can only give us ranges for dates of composition, rather than dates that are close to the mark. But the New Testament documents can be placed sort of roughly in order according to their time of composition. But time of composition can be misleading. A genuine letter can have one time of composition, but documents like Matthew and Luke are compilations and therefore have underlying material that existed earlier, material that the writer was working from. This underlying material in the Gospels could be the earliest material about Jesus in the New Testament. It is if it is authentic eyewitness material, even if it is oral tradition. Then there's the letters of Paul. There are seven of these that are generally regarded as authentic by historians, and my understanding is that these are the earliest and most authentic writings in the New Testament. They are 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, 2 Corinthians and Romans. The rest of the Pauline letters are interspersed further on in the list I'm looking at, provided by earlychristianwritings.com which puts these documents into an order of earliest to latest. It's one list among others, and I don't know how accurate it is. Nor does anyone really, there are just more informed opinions among historians. The didache, which we've already looked at, is also very early, and so are a number of other extra-biblical documents that are seen as Christian. But we're dealing with the New Testament documents here, so moving forward in time, there's Hebrews, and then there's the first of the Gospels, Mark, James, also an early one, then further down the list, Matthew, 1 Peter, Luke, and Acts, then further again, Revelations, then John. And so it goes on. But that's what I wanted to find, the order of the four Gospels. The general consensus that Mark is first and John is last seems to be solid enough. Matthew and Luke could be either way around. Okay, so the Gospels are about things that happened. The people who were witnesses of these things were Jewish people in Judea and Galilee. The original stories were told by them. It's generally agreed that they would have primarily spoken Aramaic, although many Jews would have also spoken Greek. These documents, the ones we have, were circulated between gentile churches around the empire. They were written in Greek, and they appear to have been written for a Gentile audience. And as for the writers, antisemitism, particularly in John, but also filtering down to the others, is a clear indication of Gentiles. So this removes these documents significantly from the setting of the story. Antisemitism tells us a lot. It's actually very helpful. Scholars recognize Matthew as a document that was originally written for a Jewish audience, due to content of this nature, but Matthew has some extreme anti-Semitism in it. So the recension that we have, the one that the Gentile churches were using, wasn't written for Jews. You don't write like that for Jews. It was written for people who don't mind seeing the Jews condemned, working from Jewish source material. And I'm pretty sure the anti-Semitic bits were not added to an existing document by writing in the margins or with sticky notes, So the whole document was copied out by Gentile hands. Now let's look at something unique about Mark. With this, the earliest gospel document, we have a writer who explains Jewish customs and translates Aramaic for his readers. Mark 7, 3-4, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Unquote. This sort of thing doesn't need to be explained to Jews. Mark 5, 41. Quote, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Unquote. This is Aramaic being translated, originally into Greek. Mark fifteen thirty four, another example, quote, And at three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unquote. Aramaic again, and there are a few other occurrences of this in Mark. This looks like a Jew translating and explaining things to a non-Jewish audience. So we're getting a sense of transmission from Jew to Gentile here, maybe. It's at least someone close enough to Jewish culture to be in a position to do this. And the closer we get to the Jewish substrata of this story, the less anti-Semitism we see, of course. So tracing anti-Semitism back in time from John to Mark. John is full of it. The narrative, particularly in words attributed to Jesus, has plenty of anti-Semitism as we've seen. Matthew and Luke have far less anti-Semitism. In Matthew we've got, let his blood be on us and on our children, those infamous words. In the second part of the introduction to this podcast I illustrated how ridiculous it is to think that these words passed between the crowd and Pilate, the Roman governor. It's a fantasy, particularly in the light of the fact that Jesus was a popular prophet among his people. A real event behind it, involving the chief priests and the Sanhedrin's condemnation of Jesus, is plausible. But this story has been embellished to condemn the Jewish people as a whole. The scene is also found in Luke and Mark. In Luke, it's not as bad as in Matthew. Then we go back to Mark, the document Matthew and Luke copied from, for large portions of their content. And the scene is still there, but in a shorter form. It's very early in the morning, and the people who bound Jesus and led him to Pilate are listed. They are the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin. It doesn't say they invited a crowd from the populace of Jerusalem, who had recently proclaimed him as Messiah. Why had they come so early in the morning? Maybe their intention to have Jesus crucified was contrary to the will of the people. In Matthew 21.46 it says that previously the chief priests and the Pharisees had looked for a way to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Although the word crowd is used in Mark for this scene, the impression that it was all the people who condemned Jesus, like in Matthew, is not there. There's also the possibility that this whole anecdote in Mark is an addition to pin responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus on the Jews, while in actual fact, it was the Romans all along. But it was too early to blame the people of Jerusalem because with this document, we're closer to the fact, when the size of the Jewish following of Jesus was more likely to have been common knowledge. So an early morning crowd of religious leaders was a more believable story. There are people who still see anti-semitism in Mark, but it is not necessarily anti-semitism, whereas in Matthew it is definitely, and then in John it's over the top. Although, of course, Christians won't agree with this because God as the author and Jesus as the speaker in John chapter 8, for example, can't be anti-semitic. So the conclusion is that these crowds of Jews must have truly been evil. Anyway, I'm making two points here. Firstly, text is being added. The author of Matthew, copying Mark, added text. He could have had another source for the part of the story where Jesus is before Pilate, but if he did, this other source fabricated content after the event, because the dialogue is just too ridiculous. Either way, you've got extra stuff being added. For Christians who believe Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, wrote this, and therefore might have remembered it for himself, this makes no sense at all. Why would the real Matthew have to copy Mark as much as he does if he was an eyewitness? This author is a copyist, a compiler. If he was the real Matthew, that would mean he even copied Mark when he wrote about his own first encounter with Jesus, when he was approached at the tax collector's booth, in Matthew 9 verse 9 referring to himself in the third person. Compare this to Mark 2.14. There's a lot of talk about how faithful the transmission of New Testament documents has been over the centuries. And speaking of the gospels, this seems to be true for the Greek recensions that we have. They haven't changed that much. From the earliest fragments we have of them, second century fragments, But that doesn't tell us anything about how faithful the transmission was before that. So before that, it seems the Jewish followers of Jesus passed on their stories to Gentiles in good faith, Mark being the best example of something close to an original, but I imagine reduced and truncated. These stories are also seen in the substrata of John, and they provide much of the material that was copied into Mark and Luke. But the anti-Semitism in these documents provides conclusive evidence for changes to these Jewish stories. Changes that were made before the start of our faithful transmission history. If it's true about the accuracy of transmission. This mysterious former period, where the story of early church history implies some sort of absolute transformation from Jew to Gentile, A period of time that seems to have been erased from the documented record, giving the impression it was too far into the distant past for documents to be preserved. A time during which the disciples of Jesus somehow got lost, as did the Jewish movement that they were a part of. Also during which the First Jewish-Roman War and the Siege of Jerusalem of AD 70 happened, something that brought about changes that should not be underestimated. Absolute upheaval. Everything was blown to pieces. And then another generation or two, and out the other side of this mysterious period, where so little is known, came the Gentile churches, who laid claim to what they called Christianity. So this period of time predates that earliest single fragment we have of a New Testament document which is a business-card-sized fragment from the Gospel of John, Papyrus 52, in the John Rylands Library, Manchester, England, dated to the first half of the second century, or later by the reckoning of some scholars. So there is no evidence of faithful transmission from the first century into the second. None. No Gospel stories written in Aramaic to compare with our Greek copies. But the fact that there was underlying material is undeniable. There's an unknown source document that both Matthew and Luke copied from, in addition to copying Mark, commonly referred to as Q, and John. John has an underlying story that shows familiarity with time, place and culture, material that looks to have come from a Jewish source, and it's been written over and changed considerably by someone who clearly is not Jewish. Anti-Semitism is a positive marker for a Gentile writer. There's a lot of it in John, and it's obvious. There's nothing subtle about it. Big changes were made for a Gentile readership. The faithful transmission commences after the Jews are written out of the story. That is, the ongoing movement of Jews who are followers of Jesus. The second point is... If we're tracing the anti-Semitism back in time, it gets less as you go. Anti-Semitism is coming from the future, if you like, and it's coming from another people, as opposed to those who knew Jesus. We know this because Jews are not anti-Semitic. Well, I'm making that assumption. And this being the case, if you could trace it all the way back, it seems clear that you would get to a point where it would disappear altogether. Okay, so again I've realised that this one is going to be too long for one episode, so I'm breaking off here and the next episode will conclude the Tracing of the Christ concept in the Gospel Stories. That next episode will be coming out pretty soon as I've already written and recorded it, so mostly just the editing to do. Thanks for listening. The music in the car ad was Humanity by Scott Holmes. And here's the explanation of the mistake I mentioned earlier. In the second part of the introduction, where I was talking about negative references to Jews in the writings of the Church Fathers, I said Ignatius of Antioch refers to the transgression of the Jews, saying, those fighters against God, those murderers of the Lord. And I said, he says this sort of thing a lot. Firstly, I forgot to give the reference, which is Ignatius to the Trallians, chapter 11. Secondly, this is in the longer recension of the letter, but not in the shorter, and the longer recensions of Ignatius' letters might be 4th century revisions, according to scholars. But then there's a middle recension, which, in what I've read, they say may be the authentic original, and I don't know if the middle recension of the Trallian's letter includes this comment about the Jews. I spent some time looking for a copy of it without success. Thirdly, I shouldn't have said Ignatius says this sort of thing a lot. When I wrote that, I was working from memory, and it's a long time since I've read through these letters. I just had a quick look at the occurrences of the word Jews in his letters, and it looks like all the times where he condemns the Jews as killers of Christ are in the longer recensions. So I retract what I said about Ignatius there, and I need to go back and edit that bit out. So I didn't fact-check as I should have there, and my bias played a part in that. Ignatius being an extremely early church father, it pleased me to see anti-Semitism in there.